Hello and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and M&A in Canada. My name is Mario Negro. I'm a partner in the Private Equity and M&A Group at Stegman Elliott. For today's podcast, I'd like to welcome a special guest, Stephen Rupnarain. Stephen is partner and leader for the M&A Tax Services Group at RSM Canada. Stephen, thank you and welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Mario. Stephen, I always start our podcasts by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, about what they do, about their group. And so I'll, I'll do the same. I'd love to hear more about you. Great. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, so a little bit about myself. Uh, you know, I've been with RSM for about 17 years uh, in one form or another through a series of acquisitions and mergers. Um, started off my career uh, at a smaller firm in more of a generalist uh, practice, which was then uh, acquired. And, you know, uh, every time we were acquired, I got the opportunity to do something a little bit more interesting. <laughs> and so for the last um, eight years now, I found myself focused on M&A tax and M&A tax services for RSM uh, Canada. Um, so RSM Canada, we're just about 230 people in the tax group uh, across the country, uh, you know, people located in, in each of the provinces. And, you know, our M&A tax team is about 13, is, we're about 13 people also across the country, uh, and we're focused on, on M&A tax services. So when you think of M&A tax services, you typically think of tax diligence, but uh, what we actually find is most of our work is uh, helping you know, private company owners uh, navigate a transaction in the most tax efficient way possible. So, you know, so everything from structuring to advisory to even a little bit of, uh, you know, deal consulting based on what we see on other transactions. Stephen, you know, RSM um, is kind of a North American platform. I mean, they're, you know, large in Canada and the U.S., and they're very well known in the, as being kind of middle market leaders and well-versed in, in doing middle market deals. And so it's been great to get your perspective today, and particularly because I know from working with RSM, you're great on the buy side, working for buyers, but great on the sell side, working for sellers. So, um, you know, looking forward to diving in uh, on that front. And, you know, given... You are the uh, the tax guy, <laughs> uh, you know, in a M&A transaction, you know, I always kind of start with tax structuring and there's been a lot going on on the tax structuring side in the last couple of years. And that's why I think it's great to have you here. And I maybe start by kind of framing where we're at because um, there has been a lot that's happened and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing uh, on the sell side. We'll start there for sellers who are looking at planning and what you normally see in in MA transactions for tax planning for sellers, um, some of the trends, what's what's going on? It'd be great to start there. Yeah, no, absolutely appreciate the question. We do assist sellers quite a lot in terms of navigating a divestiture. Uh, you know, I think at a high level, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing is I would say more awareness of structuring for tax prior to an exit. You know, I would say uh, pre-pandemic a number of years ago, uh, you'd get sellers coming in after an LOI has been signed. Um, you know, they're already navigating through the diligence process with the buyer and, you know, they sort of uh, wake up and realize and they say, oh, wait a minute, like the biggest expense here is not going to be my transaction costs or my broker fees. It's going to be the tax <laughs> liability associated with the deal. And they don't really have a handle on, on what that number is. 
Um, and so you're you're scrambling at the last minute to try to you know not only put together some estimates, but also try to understand what you can do from a tax planning perspective. Are there any attributes uh, that we can work with? Do we have access to things like capital gains exemptions? But it, it was a very rushed you know process, and a lot of the times we really couldn't get there once you're post LOI because certain planning uh, needs to really be undertaken you know a number of years before you actually get to an exit. So we've seen a shift in that a little bit in terms of you know sellers, particularly founder-owned businesses, being more proactive, thinking ahead, thinking about who their exit partner might be. Is it going to be a strategic buyer? Is it going to be an industry peer uh, competitor? Um, is it going to be an employee exit? Are they going to have a management buyout? Uh, and then really wanting to dive into the modeling ahead of time, you know, years in advance to say, okay, well, you know, if I exit the business for this, you know, what does that mean? And, and what does that mean from an after-tax cash perspective? And is that enough for me to retire on? Is that enough for me to do these other things that I want to do? Um, so certainly seeing the trend of more awareness, uh, particularly in the founder-owned space around, you know, exit planning from a tax perspective. Now, as you mentioned, Mario, you know, tax legislation is always changing. The law is always changing. Um, certainly some of the planning opportunities that were available for sellers, uh, you know, within the last three or four years, those opportunities have changed significantly. Um, you know, the federal government has closed uh, a lot of those planning opportunities, which are largely what we call corporate deferral strategies, meaning that you know, if you're a seller and you don't need all the money personally to go, you know, buy homes or personal assets like boats and cars, um, there was an opportunity to defer a fair amount of the tax uh, in a corporate vehicle uh, and reinvest it there. You know, those opportunities are slowly shutting down um, for sellers. So what we're seeing is the government move towards more, you know, prescriptive planning. So Instead of folks being able to look at provisions within the income tax legislation and use those provisions in a way that's favorable, but perhaps not the original intent of the provision, um, they're kind of, you know, the, the government is kind of saying, you know, we get it, that's on side with the law and that's okay, but it really wasn't the intent of the provision when it was originally drafted. And so we're going to try to close some of these things down. So I think we can see a continued move towards that as we go into the future of tax planning. But that's not to say there's still not other opportunities available for sellers. Um, things like the capital gains exemption, uh, you know, is certainly something that's endorsed by the government. It's been prescribed. It's been there for a long time. Uh, the ability to maximize that among family members. And there's still other corporate deferral strategies that are available for sellers, uh, which again, um, are not you know, offensive when you look at the original intent of the, uh, the policy reasons behind those strategies. So to kind of step away from too much tax technical talk, you know, the takeaway is that sellers are getting more sensitive to these things. And if you're not as a seller, you really should be thinking about it well, well ahead of time uh, and really trying to understand, you know, not just what your purchase price is. Sellers are really focused on, you know, purchase multiples, looking at industry competitors, wanting to get, you know, normalized EBITDA where they need it to be, um, but not necessarily as focused on, okay, well, but what's my after-tax return on this deal? And is that really where I'm targeting for a return? And so, like I said, you know, would encourage sellers who aren't thinking about that to start having those discussions. Um, but we are seeing a move towards that as a greater awareness of, of tax planning and, and tax consequences um, are becoming in the forefront of people's minds. 
Um, I, I have I have to say, uh, Stephen, to just further reiterate your point, because uh, I do a lot of cell site mandates, and it is the most painful thing to see when you kind of explain to a seller that you know if they had done something a couple of years ago, they literally could have saved sometimes millions in tax, and and they simply can't do it because they just you know should have done it a couple of years ago. So it's it's to your point. Like the timing point is the one I find is the hardest because you literally can't do anything about it. It's too late. And so uh, I'm glad to see that people are kind of becoming more conscious about it earlier on in the process and not letting those opportunities for some you know tax efficient planning to get away. So yeah, no, absolutely. It's even things, you know, um you know, we see we see a lot just in terms of not even tax planning to save taxes per se, but additional things that come up during a deal that have a tax cost that wasn't expected. So, you know, we come across a lot of deals where, you know, sellers have assets inside the business that the buyer doesn't want. Um, real estate assets, non-core business assets that need to be carved out. And, you know, that that has to happen on a, on a taxable basis or just even things like employee uh, employee remuneration retention plans that really weren't thought out when they were originally implemented in terms of, you know, what's the cost going to be to the employees on a potential exit, particularly if they're, they're meant to defer or roll over some of their investment and, and you can't do that on a tax deferred basis. Now you're into a bad situation where you've got uh, a lot of tax to pay, but not no cash proceeds to pay it with. Right. So, um, let me ask you now to turn it over to the other side, which is, uh, you know, RSM is also well known for representing a lot of buyers, particularly private equity firms in the middle market. So you see that side of the equation, too. And I want to get a sense from you for our, our audience, just the kind of planning you're seeing for a lot of the buyers in our marketplace on these kind of middle market deals and the tax planning. And if there's anything innovative or anything new you're seeing on that front or where it's, where it's evolved from. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, on the buy side, you know, really the buyers are concerned and continue to be concerned, and it's been a, a traditional concern of buyers uh, is how do they get um, the step up in the underlying tax cost of the assets they're acquiring. So really, the goal from a buyer perspective is, hey, if I'm paying a hundred million dollars for a business, I'd sure like to get a hundred million dollars worth of depreciation in that business that I can apply against the profits to to save me some some tax. Uh, a lot of buyers, you know, you'd be surprised uh, that they're they're not aware that we don't have a mechanism to push the purchase price for shares down into the company to get a step up on those assets. So, a lot of buyers walk into the trap of you know doing a share deal thinking that, okay, the price I paid for the shares can somehow be um, allocated amongst the assets inside the company, and that's how I'll get my depreciation. Uh, and then they're not, it's not available. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a simple way of doing that in Canada. So buyers are now, in, in my view, you know, and in my experience, buyers are now asking some of these questions pre-LOI, um, you know, as they're contemplating the LOI and putting the offer together, you know, they really want to understand this from a modeling perspective as they're looking at computing their own return to their investors. Uh, and a lot of times they'll have, you know, depreciation computations baked in that we have to remove for them. And, and it surprises them and they want to understand what's going on. Uh, and we still see it. It hasn't really shifted the landscape in terms of, OK, everybody's asking for an asset deal now. Um, it's still, you know, still largely stock deals. But at the same time, I think buyers are looking you know, sellers should be aware that buyers do build some of that into their modeling, which ultimately comes into how they 
you know, approach purchase price when they're looking at a stock deal versus an asset deal. So uh, what's evolving in that is, you know, we used to have plans whereby you could have a, a win for both buyers and sellers, where buyers would get some uh, depreciation step up and sellers would not be disadvantaged from a tax perspective. Uh, that planning has been, you know, closed down by the government. So now buyers are looking at what we call, you know, sort of traditional hybrid plans where it's a part stock deal, part asset deal, a lot of complexity associated with implementing those types of plans. So you really have to have enough depreciation on the table uh, to make it worth it for both parties. And particularly, you know, that might have some cost to the sellers as well. So it's it's not just the benefit of the depreciation that buyers are looking at, but they're also looking at any potential equalizations that they might have to make to the sellers for the additional tax costs. So, you know, it continues to be an evolving area um, for buyers as, as they approach deals, but sellers would do well to understand that these, these mechanics do get incorporated into their modeling and, and how they think about purchase price and, uh, you know, after-tax cash flow that the business is going to be generating. I know, Stephen, that to your point, the federal government has kind of really, uh, and you said it well, really kind of uh, limited some of the opportunities that existed uh, for both buyers and sellers in the last couple of years. And, and I know one particular we used to have a lot of people do, we used to call it Cayman Island planning and this kind of offshore type stuff. And my sense is I've noticed the last couple of years, it really has kind of fallen away. Is is that gone? Is that kind of really off the table now? That ability to kind of do some planning off, <laughs> offshore is because it used to be very popular and it seems that, you know, with, little changes to your point the last couple of years that's one of those things that's really uh kind of fallen away yeah that's that's right i mean i don't think that one is uh is coming back and you know for i guess for our listeners you know that planning essentially involved um deferring tax through a corporation that was not considered um you know a canadian controlled private corporation so it allowed for a deferral of a portion of the tax liability on a transaction so yeah, I, I don't think that type of planning is coming back, you know, and just the, I'd say the tone of, of the, the current government has over the last five years been towards, you know, closing down um, some of the planning opportunities that were available, not, not just on a transaction, but just generally available to business owners, um, whether it be on transactional proceeds or operating cash flows from from running a business. So uh, we, we have seen that tone and that trend um, towards private company and private company owners in in over the last number of budgets. So I, I would expect it to continue. Uh, that being said, I think there is still a lot that you can do in in the planning space on both the buyer and seller side um, that is currently, you know, sort of accepted planning, um, you know, to the best of our knowledge, there's no CRA challenges. They've issued favorable views uh, on certain types of planning. So uh, I think, you know, you just have to navigate to what options are available. Um, and so you might have fewer options out there from a planning perspective, but there are still things uh, that can be done to sort of mitigate tax if you're a seller um, and then, you know, maximize, um, you know, your after-tax cash flows if you're, if you're a buyer. I mean, Stephen, you you kind of read my mind because the next question I was going to ask you is about the trends that we could see. You know, I always ask the, the famous crystal ball question I ask to our guests about where they see things 
going from where they sit in their space and, and just generally speaking in respect to M&A activity. And I think you've already kind of started to answer that. But uh, I always find fascinating about your world is people look for new opportunities to find innovative planning strategies. Uh, I don't know if there's anything you're seeing. I mean, I know one of the things I'm starting to see is you hit onto it, people going back to what we call the old school hybrids, where you actually did physically transfer the assets prior to, to uh, as part of a closing to allow, like we said, the seller and the buyer to benefit. Um, anything else that you're seeing, you know, you would say, or or if I can ask your crystal ball, you you think there'll be some innovative stuff that people will try to, you know, work through or, or propose some ideas on. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. I think there's always an appetite out there to develop uh, and, and engineer, you know, solutions that are within the tax code, within the tax law that provide, you know, parties with a, a, a good and fair tax result uh, and good outcome. So, you know, you mentioned it, hybrid, hybrid, plans, I think, are coming back. Um, they're not as tax efficient as they used to be. But again, if the juice is worth the squeeze, we are seeing both parties move towards that type of planning. Um, you know, capital gains exemption planning continues to be uh, very prevalent. So the ability to shelter, you know, $900,000 worth of gain per individual seller on a qualifying sale uh, you know, that has come back to the forefront now as something that people are really paying attention to. And corporate deferral strategies. Um, so again, you know, while some of the corporate deferral strategies that were available have now been closed, there are, you know, ones that people are coming back to. So for instance, safe income, crystallization strategies, um, looking at tax attributes, uh, tax attribute consolidation strategies, um, things that are accepted that you know, people used to do before the offshore plans, before the 111-4E plans, those things are now starting to make a comeback, right? Just like the hybrids, because they're, they, they were kind of old, old uh, stalwarts and you know, we can kind of bring them back now and, and start looking at using them again. So a little bit more complexity and cost to implementation, but you know, with valuation multiples coming down, in the market a little bit, as well as like purchase consideration forms changing. So we're seeing a lot more use of earnouts, a lot more role equity to kind of bridge valuation gaps or valuation uncertainty um, because of COVID. So with, when you combine those factors, for sure, people are looking to squeeze as much as they can out of whatever cash consideration is coming across on the deal. Um, and certainly minimizing taxes is, is a big is a big component of that. Stephen, I wanted to say thank you for joining us. This is not an easy topic to get a, a lot covered in a short time. And uh, we were able to do that, kind of give people a lay of the land for tax planning on mid-market M&A. And so, just so thank you. Thank you for uh, your input and your perspective. It's great to hear and really appreciate you joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Mario.